You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. The last week we started in this teaching series, Manifesto. And uh, Manifesto, it's been kind of a kickoff to this Leaving the Walls Behind initiative. And a manifesto is uh, its a public declaration of what you're all about. You know, the Declaration of Independence was. I was looking up some famous manifestos this week. Uh, among them were like Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech. You know, it's like this is a definitive statement. I'm making a point here. And, and, and so a manifesto is one of those moments. This is what we're all about. This is what we stand on. And if we can't be this, if we can't do this, then we're not doing what we set out to do. Since the very beginning of Venture Church, it's been almost two years since we launched uh, services back at the YMCA, and uh, we've always said these, these three things. We have a goal. We have a three-part goal that we will be God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. In fact, can we say that together? If, if you've been with Venture for a while and you get that, let's just say that together. Together we are what? God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. And uh, so the cool thing about that phrase is that it's kind of a manifesto. So we are. We're God-chasers. We're grace-shaped. We will be love agents. Last week, we spent time talking about being a God-chaser and what that means. I encourage you, if you missed that, to check it out on our podcast. Uh, you can get it on our website or, or on iTunes. Um, and the next week, we'll spend some time talking about being a love agent. But today, what I want to do is settle into the spot of what might be the most abstract of those three phrases, that I am grace-shaped. What does that mean? What does it mean to be grace-shaped? It's, it's not like a phrase we see in the Bible, and uh, it definitely is, is uh, communicated in the Bible to be grace-shaped. But what does it mean to be grace-shaped? Well, every week I get to get up here and talk about the Bible. And, and I love this phrase that, that we use here, and it's that you know, we love to look to the Bible for the answers to life's most important questions. Uh, and when I look at the Bible, I see a lot of really good things in there. I mean, there, there's really good teachings about who God is and how we can um, kind of follow Him and live for Him. There's some really good moral code that we can set as kind of a checklist of things to do and not to do. It's not what the Bible's all about, but there's definitely some of that in there. There's some heartwarming stories about people and relationships. But, you know, as I look through this book, I've got a Bible here, as I look through this and I read it, just page after page, chapter after chapter, book after book, book, what I find is that more than anything else, there's one particular theme that I see throughout this whole book. And I've really wrestled with this phrase this week, and, and I think it's something I really, I really believe. That as I look through the Bible, what I see more than anything else is the story of people. But not just any people. The story of people who are messed up. You ever read through the Bible? Like, think about some people that you heard about from the Bible. Most of those people, save Jesus, <laughs> were messed up. In fact, let's just take a little tour. I mean, it's cover to cover. You meet the first people in the Bible. They're Adam and Eve. Uh, these people are infamously the people who basically ruined everything for everyone. That's their legacy, right? You know Adam and Eve's story? Like, they just, oh, we invented sin. My bad, right? Sorry, can't undo that one. That's Adam and Eve. We move on to their next generation. They got a couple of boys. Boys will be boys, right? What, what do they do? I mean, you got one of the sons murdering the other son in cold blood. I'm just I'm a little jealous right now, so I'm just going to kill him. No, that's not how we play with our friends, Cain, right? But messed up people. This is just the very first family, right? And it goes on and on. If you read through uh, uh, the, the line of, of Adam and Eve, we learned that in, with, within a couple of generations, pretty much all of their offspring have turned their back on God. It's a messed up family. You fast forward a couple of chapters, we ourselves in, you know, around chapter 12 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we meet Abraham. Uh, Abraham, he, he's a messed up guy. Like, if you follow the story of Abraham, you find out that though, yes, he had a lot of faith and he was a really good person, and I actually think that he had more faith than, than I could ever have. 
But he's not exactly an exemplary role model when you look at all the things he does in his life. In fact, Abraham's life is messed up. We go a couple generations forward. Abraham's got some grandkids. They're twin boys, Jacob and Esau. They're good boys. You know, they do things that boys do. But this guy, uh, Jacob, he's, he's just, he's like a little schemer, man. Uh, he, he wants to be the oldest son, but he's not. Uh, it's rough when you're twins, you know. I was born, I'm five seconds older than you. You were not. I was too. Mom was there. You know, and so there's this whole conversation going on with him. He wants to get the inheritance. He wants to receive what's called the birthright, which makes him heir to the promises of God that God had given, uh, through his forefathers. And you know how he gets it? He steals it by tricking his brother with a bowl of soup and some other things. Like this is, this, and Jacob gets his name changed by God later. He got another nickname. You remember what it is? Israel. That's who Jacob is. So Jacob becomes the father of the nation of Israel. How did he become the father of this great spiritual nation? By stealing his birthright. That's, that's a messed up family. I don't know about you, but to me, this is, this is a crazy story. You fast forward, Jacob's got a couple kids of his own, 12 boys to be exact. These 12 boys, they can't get along. One of the younger brothers, his name is Joseph. If you know Joseph's story, uh, he had a fancy coat that his dad gave him and the other brothers were jealous because I want a coat like that. Dad never gives me fancy coats. And like, he's like, well, I like my coat. And so you know what they do to deal with that? Oh, they do what every, every jealous brother does. They kidnap that brother, they throw him in a deep pit and they pretend like he was got killed by a wild animal. That's what they do to their brother. You thought that your older siblings were rough. Like this is, this is real life. This is what these guys did to their brother. And then, and then to make matters worse for their brother, they sell him into slavery. He in, ends up in Egypt. Here's the deal. This sounds more like an episode of, of, I don't know, uh, Jerry Springer or Jersey Shore than something I would imagine to find in some holy document. Right? And the question that I have is, what do we do with that? It's, is, is it the truth? Anyone who's read the Bible? Is it the truth? Is these, are these the story of the Bible? What do we do that with that cover to cover to cover? And, and that's just the tip of the iceberg for the book of Genesis, which is the first of 66 books. Every one of them just about filled with stories about messed up people. What do you do with that? Better yet, what, is, what does God do with that? When I was a, a kid and my brother, I've got a younger brother, his name's Jason and I got a million stories about Jason, but my mom used to, this is thing that would always happen. We would be uh, just going at it, like fighting me and my brother. We, we would go to blows, man. We'd be like fist fighting. I was always a little bit bigger than him, so I'd pin him down with my knees and just kind of, you know, take cheap shots at his face. You know, that's what you do as a big brother. And so, but then he pushed back. He was feisty, and kid was, and he was a rock star when it came to wrestling. And, and, and we'd be like, ah, we're yelling. All of a sudden, mom busts in the room. Boys! And then we like separate from each other real quick, like nothing happened. He's like bleeding from the eye. I'm wiping snot from my nose, like, what, mom? And so she steps and she says this. If I heard my mom say this, you know, once, it was a million times. She's like, what am I going to do with you two? (laughs) What am I going to do with you two? You can't get along. You won't listen. I love you. I want good things for your life. But what am I going to do with you? And I can only imagine God as he looks at the stories play out in the Bible as history plays on, that he just, he sees these things playing, he's just like, what am I going to do with you? Like, I want good things for you, but you won't listen to me, you won't do what's right, you can't get along. What am I going to do with you? And so that's why, truthfully, when I read the Bible, when I look through all the pages and all the stories, yes, I do see the messed up people. But you know why I continue to love this book? It's because what I also see is what happens when those messed up people come into contact with a God who's got it all together. Like time after time, God extends his hand of forgiveness to these people who mess up. These opportunities to return to him. He gives to them what I believe might be the most beautiful word in the English language. 
He gives them grace. An opportunity to move forward even though you deserve not to. Grace. And so when we return to this book week after week, it's, I don't think for me and hopefully for you, I don't think it's because there's like a checklist of do's and don'ts because God is this tyrant and he wants us to be perfect. I think it's the story of what happens when we intersect our messed up lives with his grace. This is pretty big news. Let me tell you why. Because me, I'm pretty messed up. Like, I got problems. I really do. Like, I, I, I grew up in a good family, and, and I love my parents, and I, I actually went to church and, and knew how to make right decisions. But, you know, like a lot of us, when I was a teenager, I fell into with some kids who, you know, we decided to, like, push the limits of what was possible and, and discovered, like, oh, they're over there. Cool, because I'm knee-deep in it right now. And, and, and so I'm working through that, and then I got into a lot of bad habits and a lot of bad mindsets. And, and then a lot of those things followed me right into my 20s, and so I take them with me to college. I take them with me into my, my marriage with my wife. And, and so what I bring with me is what? Like mindsets that aren't set on honoring God and addiction that is, is separating my wife and I and, 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 and struggles and pain and immorality and lies. So to the point where now I'm knocking on my mid-30s and the ghosts of those decisions still follow me. Is anybody with me on that? Like I don't think that I have to like go way out on a limb to bounce the ball into your court and say, how about you? You messed up? Right? We're messed up. The truth is that people are messed up. And so the question that I asked about the Bible is the same one I want to ask about. I was like, what, what do we do with that? Or better yet, what does God do with that? I love to look at the Bible for the answers to life's most important and sometimes hardest questions. And so this morning, uh, recently I've done a lot of teaching through some long, lengthy passages of the Bible. I love to do that because it just teaches itself. Uh, but this morning I've got two passages from the New Testament of the Bible that I want to unpack together. Ones that you might want to write down as you're working through your own mess. And I think that they can really help. And so we're going to be in two books, both written by this guy named Paul. Paul was an apostle uh, of Jesus. The cool thing about Paul's story, I love Paul's story because he's one of the people in the New Testament that's totally messed up. Uh, the New Testament is that last third of the Bible that talks about the life of Jesus and the, and the early church and, and instruction for daily living and stuff like that. Uh, when we meet Paul, he's a persecutor of Christians. He's actually a murderer. He's taken part in killing people who don't renounce their faith in Jesus. But then one day he meets Jesus, totally rocks his world, and he's like, wow, I'm convinced. What do I need to do to follow you? He ends up becoming the greatest missionary probably to ever live, and he, and he pens most of the New Testament of the Bible. So we're going to find uh, two of Paul's books, and the first one's going to be in the book of Ephesians. If you want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. And if you're actually looking up in your Bible, you can also look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in those passages today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible today with you, or maybe the Bible you have is maybe difficult to read because it's an older translation in English, uh, I want to encourage you, we have free Bibles to give away every week. We give them away. There's some under the seats. I see them right here. They kind of look like this one. Actually, this isn't the one I use. I stole it because I left mine in the car. Um, but I guess I could take one home too, right? Because we can all have a free one. Um, you can take a free Bible before you leave today. We have some at the back before you exit. And also, it'll be on the screen uh, as we go through it. But we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians was written to a group of people in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is a city on the uh, the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And it was a big city in those days. It still is today. And uh, where we find Paul writing to this church in Ephesus, and he calls them the Ephesians, because that's what you're called if you live in Ephesus, these people were messed up. 
The people in this city, we learn, uh, do not honor God. They don't know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those guys. He doesn't know, they don't know that God. And so Paul becomes a missionary to these people. It is so perfect that Paul is the missionary to the Ephesians because Paul is a messed up man who figured out what happened to come into contact with God's grace. And he's going to a messed up city to say, guess what? You can have it too. Like that's his whole point. So he writes this letter to the church at, at Ephesus. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, as for you, talking to the people at Ephesus, but I think he's also talking to us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving wrath. I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you guys. <laughs> Just kind of gratifying the desires of our flesh. Like that, that, that is the cause of a lot of messed up. Am I right? Like a lot of messed up in the world is because people are like, you know, I really don't care what the after effect of this is. Like right now, it gratifies my flesh. I kind of like it. So I'm going to do it and I don't really care how it's going to affect anybody else. And sometimes we even know how it's going to affect somebody else. But because of an addiction, because of a brokenness, because of a pain... We know how it's going to affect us or other people. We're like, I just can't resist, right? That's our brokenness. That's our messed upness. He says that we were all like that at one time. Like it's easy for us to point fingers and be like, yeah, you and you and you and you and you. Like those people, at least I'm not as bad as them. It's easy for us to point fingers. But what Paul says here is like, we were all like that. At some point, on some level, messed up. And as a result, this last, can we put that last passage up there again? He says, by nature, we were deserving wrath. Who's wrath? God's like punishment. We did something wrong and we deserved to be punished for it. And that's not something we like to, to camp out and, and think about a whole long time. But man, our messed upness, it separates us from God. We feel it. I talked last week about the God-shaped hole in our life. And we try to fill it with all kinds of things, right? And as a result of our mess, we just got to stand before God and own for it, Right? So we're tracking along with Paul here so far, okay? I already said it. People in the Bible messed up. I messed up. You're messed up. All God's children messed up. We're all messed up. Let's point to messed up anonymous. We'll get t-shirts. We'll do like a bike ride and raise money for it. Like, that's, we're all messed up. So we're tracking with Paul here, right? This is, it's pretty, and we see where this is going. Um, and so, th- then, then what happens, something happens in verse 4. You ever been watching one of those movies where, um, this happens to me with Lifetime movies. I don't know why Lifetime is a network. I have no idea who produces the movies on those, that channel. Uh, my, my mother-in-law, she loves it, and other people, ever, other people in my life, they like those movies. But I watch those movies, and I'm sitting on, on page one, like I'm watching the script of this movie play out. I'm like, I already know what's going to happen. Like I know exactly how this movie is going to end because it's like every other movie I've ever seen like this. And so a lot of times we get and, and we see a movie like that, and we, and we, and we know the story before it happens. But then there's what I like to call um, good movies. <laughs> Good movies, you're watching it, and all of a sudden there's a twist in the plot, and you're like, oh, that's what makes you go, hmm, ah, and this is what we go, I did not see that coming, <laughs> I did not see that coming, now, we're reading from Ephesians chapter 2, and what happens in verse 4 is one of those plot twists, I want you to know this, it starts with the word but, and I'm going to tell you what, this is the biggest but in the Bible, yes, you can say that, the biggest but in the Bible happens in verse 4, there's a lot of them like this, same context, verse 4, it says, but... Because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. 
I did not see that coming. <laughs> we have all our objects. Uh, we all gratify the sinful nature. We're doing all these things we want to do. Blah, blah, blah. I see where this is headed. We're deserving wrath. Okay, slap me on my wrist. I, but, wait, what's happening here? God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive. In verse 6, it says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. When I was a youth minister, uh, I used to I used to teach this passage all the time. I worked with high schoolers and middle schoolers for about 10 years. And I love to teach this passage. I called the whole passage that we just read uh, the gospel in a nutshell. And there's a couple places in the Bible where you can read two or three verses and you can see what God's whole plan was, like, like what he's up to. You can see his whole plan. The gospel in a nutshell, the word gospel means God, God's good news for, for mankind. The gospel is that Jesus came and, and he's got a plan for us to be reconnected. That's the gospel. And the fact that it's in a nutshell means that it's a small condensed version of that. And as I taught this, I used to look at, at this, this verse. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Let's look at that again. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. When I would teach through this gospel in a nutshell, I would often um, do a little pantomime with it. And it would look something like this. And God reached down into our mess, into our brokenness, into our hurt, into our pain. He reached down. He actually physically came down as a person, Jesus. And he, and he grabbed us. Like, I don't know, maybe by like the, the nape of our neck, <laughs> like a little puppy, or like by a collar. I don't know if he's got like a God handle that he can just grab onto. I don't know. But he reached down and he grabs us and he raises us up out of the mess. Now, what does he do with us there? There's a lot of things. Like, I, I have actually picked up some dirty stuff. Like, like, like Nat, we've got chickens. We've got chickens at our house. You ever raised chickens? Yeah, they smell bad. And so sometimes, like, you just got to grab them things. Like, I don't want to hold on to them long. And I'm not, definitely, I'm not going to bring them and put them on my bed with me. Right? Like, if I got to move our chickens, I'm just like, eh, and I like to just toss them. I'm just kind of mean like that. But they have wings. Like, they need to use them. And so, but God doesn't just pick us up and just toss us. That's not what God does with us in our mess. He reaches us up, and then look at this verse. What does he do with us? He seats us with him. In the heavenly realms. Do you see that place of honor? From the mess to majesty. It's an amazing transition. I'm going to tell you something. I don't deserve that. <laughs> I don't deserve that. How many times have I snatched my kids out of danger? I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. Man, you can't walk through a parking lot without somebody almost dying. It's like every day. Like, you, what are you, a cat? Like, you've got nine lives. It's amazing. And so we're walking through a parking lot, and my daughter's just running because she's so excited because I don't know. It's a double coupon day at Kroger. I don't know. She's running. Like, she has no care in the world in the fact that there's this driver in a car, and he's coming straight at her. He has no malice in his heart. He can't even see her over the other cars. And what does she do? She runs out. But as a dad, I reach out, and I snatch her arm, and I pull her in. You know what's funny? In the moment, she may not like that. But when I pull her close to my chest, I say, I got you. I raised, I got you out of your mess and I seated you with your father here. And that's what God is offering us. It's because we found ourselves in a mess and he knows, even if we might not like it at the time, he knows that he is our only hope. We can see God doing this all over the place. Throughout history, there, there are millions of stories of God reaching down and grabbing people in their mess and setting them upright. Is there in the room who'd be like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I mean, I feel it. I know, I know, I know a lot of our stories in this room. We're like, yeah, that, that's me. God picked me up out of my mess and he made me right. There's a book called The Case for Grace by a guy named Lee Strobel. 
uh, Lee writes a lot of really good books that are faith building and help us to understand who God is. And this book is all about grace. Uh, he tells a story of, of, of someone being pulled out of their mess. In the 19, late 1970s, there was a communist group called the Khmer Rouge. I think I'm saying that right, the Khmer Rouge. And, and they forcibly took over cities in Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia is in Southeast Asia. It was a mess, okay? And these guys come in and... Um, the, 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 what I want to do is kind of personalize that piece of history. I'm not going to give you uh, the full history lesson on what happened there in Cambodia. I want to personalize it through the eyes of a guy named Christopher Lapel. Okay, I want you to remember that name. Christopher Lapel. Christopher had completed two years of college, and he had a hopeful future ahead of him. He was about 19 years old when uh, these armed guards come through his neighborhood and run him out of his house. And you've heard this story through history in a lot of different political scenarios. But in Cambodia, it was the same thing. People were run out, and they become refugees. That's a communist group, and they force a lot of the people to do labor that they don't want to do. And one thing is that people end up having to work in these fields. The fields end up being nicknamed the killing fields. And we've got Christopher Lapel, and Lapel, though he had uh, almost a full college education, he wanted to be with his family, so he actually lied about his education so he could work with them in the fields. And so he's out there working, and, and against his will, he's working and working and working and working to be a farmer in terrible conditions. These people are living malnourished. And anytime you don't carry your own weight while working in the fields, the guards would come by and at their own discretion, they would just execute you on the spot. That's why they become called the killing fields. In this process, Christopher Lapel he loses his parents. He loses a lot of his friends. In fact, all the people that he met there, he said something like two-thirds of the people that he met ended up dying in the fields. One day, Christopher uh, wakes up and he's not feeling too good, feeling kind of sick. And he knows that while he's sick, uh, that he is a target. Because anyone who's not carrying their own weight in the field become a target for execution. I want to read a quote from him. He says, I was terrified because of the killing fields. Every day I saw the Khmer Rouge killing people. I can still hear the voices of the people begging for their lives and being tortured before they were killed. And I thought, it's better for me to die somewhere in a forest than have someone kill me like that. So this is what he did. He's sick. He knows that his, his life is a danger. This is what he does. He says, I ran to the border of Thailand. It was not that far from where we lived. This guy's life was a mess, and it was absolutely no fault of his own. Sometimes, like, we make a mess on our own. This guy's just like, Ouch, things are pretty good, actually. <laughs> and now life is a mess. And so Christopher's story goes on and says he'd been, uh, he'd been raised a Buddhist. His family was a Buddhist family, but he had really no faith of his own. I don't know that he particularly felt that he uh, had Buddhist faith. He's running through the jungles of Cambodia into Thailand. And as he's running to escape from the Khmer Rouge, uh, he somehow stumbles into this refugee camp. It's funny when, he, when you read the story. It says he, he stumbles upon this refugee camp and he sees the name on the sign, but he doesn't really know the name. He didn't understand it. He can read it, but he doesn't understand it. And, and the sign said, Christian Outreach. It's a refugee center. He's like, I don't care where they are, I'm going in. So he goes inside, I don't care who they are, I'm going in. So he goes inside, and there he gets rest, he gets water, he gets food, and he gets something completely unexpected. People begin to tell him about the God who loves him. They begin to tell him about Jesus, who is God's representation from heaven to earth, about one thing that he had never heard about in his life, something called grace. No matter what you've done, no matter your background, no matter your baggage, that God will take you and he will scoop you up and he will love you and he will seat you beside him. 
And as he learns about this, he says, I'm convinced. He becomes a Christian, he gets baptized, and he decides, I want to tell everybody that I can find about this guy who loves us. Like, people need to go about this guy. How do people not know about this guy? How are we not talking about Jesus more? Well, it's still a communist, communist country. It's the late 70s, and uh, he just really doesn't have the opportunity to get out. It's, it's, I mean, he shares what he can, but it's very dangerous, and so it's difficult. Someone secures him passage to America. And so at some point, he ends up moving to America, and he decides, okay, I want to be a missionary to Cambodia. But to do that, I want to go get a further education. So he finds himself in America. He goes to a Christian university. He studies the Bible. He figures out who Jesus is. He figures all the, uh, the, the, the worldviews of the world, and he compares them, and he understands, like, this is definitely what I want to put my faith in. And so he, he stays in America, and is still not able to get back over to Cambodia. So while he's still here in America, he goes, you know what? I think I'll pastor a church. So this guy actually becomes the minister at, at a church for like 20 years. Can you imagine that guy being your preacher? You're like, yeah, and remember that time I was in the jungle running from the communist you know, army. Like, it's, it's crazy, but this guy becomes a preacher in America for like 20 years. But all the while, he's not lost sight of his goal to get back to his native land and to tell people about the grace of Jesus. Finally, he gets his chance. It's 1994. Nearly 20 years later, he does get to go back to Cambodia. It's more than 20 years later. The Khmer Rouge has fallen out of power. It was, it was finally possible for him to return. And so he starts by sharing his message with the people there. He, he's saved some money. He's bought a place to build a church building. He starts sharing and sharing and sharing this message of grace, a message of forgiveness. And this is a concept entirely foreign to these people who for a generation have lived under an oppressive regime that said nothing about grace, nothing about mercy, nothing about forgiveness. And one by one, people begin to accept Jesus and his story. They become Christians. Now, this is where, and now that story is good enough by itself. It's like, wow, that's awesome. But this is where the story has an amazing plot twist. And it's where the question, what does it mean to be grace-shaped, starts to find an answer. In 1995, Christopher, he leads this man named Hang Pen to Jesus. He baptizes a guy, Hang Pen, and Hang Pen becomes a changed man. Uh, this guy begins to attend church. He goes to church leader training because he wants to begin to plant churches. He goes home and he tells all of his family about Jesus and they all become Christians too. He becomes this really strong, dynamic Christian. He was the picture of what a Christian excited about Jesus is. But in 1999, just a few years later, Hang, ben, Hang Pen has a confession to make. And the story is, is kind of long. I'll just kind of condense it like this. It turns out that Hang Pen had been the fourth highest leader in the Khmer Rouge regime. This guy, Hang Pen, had been responsible for the torture and execution of over 14,000 people. He went by another name. Hang Pen was actually an alias that he took on after the fall of the regime to protect his family, to protect his life. He'd gone by another name, Deutsch. Hang Pen had run a prison where they interrogated and tortured and killed people and buried them in mass graves. Picture the Holocaust. This is the guy that Christopher Lapel had led to Jesus. What do you do with that? What does God do with that? Well, Hank Penn allowed himself to be arrested. And it was 10 years before Christopher Lapel was actually able to speak to him again. Remember, Christopher Lapel's life had been ruined by the Khmer Rouge regime. His family had been lost. Everyone that he knew and loved had been killed. And so 10 years later, Christopher finally gets a chance to go speak to Hang Pen. And the reporter says that it was amazing because when they met, 
Christopher did not react with hatred or anger. Instead, he looked Penn in the eye and he said, I love you and I forgive you. See, Christopher had taught Hank Penn about Jesus. And this was his chance to show him what it really meant. Christopher was later called to testify in court at Penn's uh, tribunal war trial. For an hour and a half, Christopher testified. But what's crazy is he started out by saying, yes, this man is guilty. He deserves to be punished for the rest of his life. He never deserves to come out of jail. The penalty, the penalty for him should be very severe. I want to make that very clear. And then he spends the rest of his hour and a half talking to a captive audience of lawyers, judges, 500 people sitting in the room, and they were actually being streamed online about the power of grace to change someone's life. This guy has a worldwide audience to talk about Jesus. What is grace? And what does it mean to be grace-shaped? I learned uh, at the feet of my mother. I've told this story before. But it's just, it's just how I learned the word grace, so sorry, deal with it. i got to tell the story every time. Um, my mom, my mom I, don't, I don't know why I was in trouble, but I do know it was outside the car. And it was one of those moments where my mom said, do not make me pull this car over. You know those moments? And so we had pulled over. So I had apparently done something that was really bad. And so she's sitting there and she's talking to me. And she's like, uh, she asked me this question. She said, Chris, what am I going to do with you? Do you want a spanking or do you want grace? And I was like, so what, well, huh? Huh? Come again? Like, because I knew, I knew spanking, like I had seen that. Uh, <laughs> but this great thing, that, the great thing, that was new. So I asked the intelligent question. Like, I'm thinking, like, sounds like a good deal. Uh, what, what, what's grace again? Tell me what that is. And this is what she says. She said, grace is when you deserve to be punished, but you don't get a punishment. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, that sounds fantastic. Like, <laughs> I'll take grace. Grace would be great. My mom's a great Christian lady, and uh, she used that opportunity, I'll never forget it, to teach me about the grace of God. And she said, you know what? You deserve to be punished, and we all do. But you know what God offers us? He offers us second chances. He offers us a chance to, to do what's right, to turn back to Him. And that's where I learned what grace was. Grace is receiving forgiveness when you deserve punishment. And it's and It's free. Like God's grace is free. It's like the air we breathe. It's just there. It's available for the taking. We just have to accept it the way that he prescribes to accept it. It's not like a bribe where we have to cheat somebody uh, to, to get, get our way into forgiveness. It's not like a settlement where you just lessen the fee or the punishment to get the forgiveness. No, it's actually more like you owed a million dollars to the IRS for some kind of tax evasion and your rich uncle comes in and he's like, look, I got that. Don't worry about it. And by the way, you don't owe me a penny. It's free. It's forgiveness. It's called grace. It's Jesus saying, you have done things that have pulled you away from God, and you decided not to trust me. But if you'll turn back to me, if you decide to trust me, I'll pay the penalty. I'll pay the cost, and you can be free. And you can have a chance at a fresh start. See, we're all messed up grace but god has a plan to make us right and god's plan is jesus i told you we're going to read two passages from uh, paul's writings and the second one i want to get into as we close up today is from first corinthians chapter six and first corinthians chapter six paul goes through and he outlines like a bunch of stuff that people have done that's wrong if you want to really see how god feels about sin read first corinthians six it gives you a pretty clear picture he outlines some specific ones um but basically to put it all in a nutshell again for you paul's like 
Yeah, we're all messed up, okay? But what I want to focus on is the turn. At verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he says, And that is what some of you were, messed up. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. See, here Paul's talking to a group of Christian people, and he says, yeah, you were messed up, but now, now you get another chance. Now you've been changed. And he gives us these three words. These are three kind of, uh, three, three kind of concepts. And as we leave today, I want you to know that if you decide to be a God chaser, and you, and you give your life to Jesus, and you submit to him, these are the three things that are true in your life. The first one is this. He says, you were washed. Hopefully we've all been washed at some point, right? You took a bath, you spread off your feet after you've been at the beach, whatever. If you have kids, like it's grosser. Um, it's, you've, you've been washed. Being washed says, uh, look, it was, it was once dirty, it was once a mess, and now it's not. I love that imagery because it's so simple. Any of us can understand being washed, and God says, listen, you were once like this at one time. You were messed up because of Jesus, though you've been washed. The second one is this. You were sanctified. As simple as the word washed is, sanctified goes into a deep level. I love the word sanctified. It's one of my favorite Bible words, and it's kind of a, a big Bible concept, and we can honestly talk about it for like 45 minutes today and really get a lot of meaty stuff out of it. But I want to break down to like briefly, like a really quick understanding of what sanctified is, and, and it's this. To be sanctified is to be viewed by God as holy. Like God looks at you and he's like, you're holy now. And I'm looking at him like, uh, holy cow, no, I'm not. And he's like, no, what I'm telling you is when I see you, what I see is holiness. Sanctification happens in two really neat ways. The first way is like an instant thing. Like we talk about baptism and, and someone giving their life to Jesus and there's this moment and there's actually, actually a physical washing, but that it corresponds with the spiritual cleansing that happens. And in that instant is an instantaneous moment where God goes, I view you now as sanctified. Like you're pure. I see you as my child now. I forgive you. But then it happens in another phase. Like, not only is it instantaneous, but it continues on and on. Sanctification is a process. God knows you're still messed up. He knows you still have the addiction. He knows you still have the relational issues. He knows that you still have the baggage and the emotional pain. He knows all this stuff. He knows that you still have the tendency to lie or steal or cheat. Like, whatever it is that you battle with, He knows that. But that's what sanctification is. It's a process. He's like, instantaneously, I look at you and I forgive you. And from here on out, we're going to work on it. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, and the last one is this, you've been justified. You've been justified. Uh, justified is kind of a, a, a clumsy word in some ways when you try to explain it, because it, it overlaps a lot of concepts. But the, the clearest way that I've seen it described is, is to kind of re-pronounce the word. Uh, and this is how you do it. If you pronounce the word justified as, just as if I'd, okay, just as if I'd, this would be the definition. Justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified means it's just as if I'd never messed up. God looks at us and he says, fresh start. Justice has been served. The penalty has been paid. The debt has been canceled. You've been justified. And so Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he says, listen, you once were like this. You once were messed up. But because of Jesus, you can be washed, you can be sanctified, you can be justified. And I don't know where you are in all of that. In fact, you might be someone today who came for the first time, you're here as a friend, with a friend, and you're just like... I don't know, like, this is pretty heavy. It sounds like you're trying to get me to buy a timeshare in Florida. Like, I, I don't understand, like, what, what is this whole thing all about? Here's all I want to let you know is this, that it's, it's a gift that God wants to give you. And it's available no matter if you want it or not. He's got it for you. And the process may be days, weeks, months, and years ahead for you, but here's my encouragement for you, is to continue to ask yourself this question. What if there's a way for God to look at me and say, 
I forgive you. Do you want to take that chance? Do you want to take that option? He hands it out to us. We look at people like Hank Penn, and we're like, there's no way God's forgiven that guy. 14,000 people he was responsible for killing. Like, I love something that Christopher Peel says about him. This is, this is a quote from the book I was reading. It said, when the Bible says God loves the world, it doesn't footnote any exceptions. God's love is inexhaustible. One of the biggest things that I come across the people who are trying to move forward and be a better God chaser or being a God chaser in the first place is that we just have the hardest time forgiving ourselves. There's no way God can like use me. But when God says he loved the world so much that he gave his son, that anyone who believes in him can have eternal life, there's no footnote that says, except for these certain people, and your name's on it. God's love is inexhaustible. See, I believe that because of Jesus, everyone has a chance to be shaped by God's love. And the way we illustrate this all the time here at Adventure is something I want to do again. Maybe you've seen this before. Maybe you've seen it in our Venture in 10 uh, thing that we do sometimes after church on Sunday morning. Um, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like we've got this ball of clay. Um, each one of us, when we're born, we're born kind of innocent and pure. And imagine that this was a perfectly round ball of clay. And this is what we come into life with. This is our soul, maybe. This is our personality. This is who we are. And this is our ball of clay. But then what happens? Life happens. And everything that happens to us begins to shape us. And mold us. And push us around. And so from the beginning of times. The things that we hear early. The things that we hear often. The things that we're told about ourselves. And we begin to believe in ourselves. They begin to shape us. And mold us. And move us. And some of the things are really good. And they make us stronger. And some things are bad. And they weaken us. Some things are like a. Like one of these. And what happens is our life gets shaped. And it gets malformed. And it turns into. I don't know. Each one of us has our own little abstract art. And what happens with that is as we're shaped by the life that we live in and the world that we live in, we come into a setting like this or we come into uh, our friendship or a relationship. We come into anything and we walk in the room with this lumpy ball of clay in our hand. We're like, uh, hi, pleased to meet you. My name's Chris. Um, this is me. <laughs> like we might try to hide it. We might try to cover it with something. We might give it to a friend. Like here, see if you can fix this. But ultimately, right, this is me. I've been shaped by all kinds of stuff. This is me. God gives us an opportunity for something different. We've been washed. We can be sanctified. We can be justified. I was reading online this week, and I found, I wish I could give credit to the person who originally said this, but I don't know who said it. But one thing he said about that passage is this quote I want to have on the screen for you. He says, one of the greatest benefits of being a Christian is that God makes us different than we used to be. <laughs> See, what happens is that we then take this mess that we have, and God says, let me have that. Just give it to me. You give it to me, bring me your pain, bring me your fear, bring me your challenges, bring them to me and let me begin to shape you. Let me make you into this masterpiece that I have designed for you and it might blow our mind what God might do with our lives. But first we've got to make a choice, a choice to be grace-shaped. So I don't know about you, but that's the big deal. It's a big deal because I, I'm a mess and this world, this world, it's a mess. But God, he came down into our mess. He grabbed us out. He pulled us close to him. Why? So he could work on us. So he could love on us. And so he could change us to be different than we used to be. My question is this. What about you? What's shaping you? 
This manifesto series is not just something for me to get up here and, and use some kind of clever slogans. It's for me to ask us as a community, what will we allow to shape us? My proposal is that we bring our clay to Jesus. And we say, take our mess and do something with it. Because only you can. So together we are God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents. Can I pray for you this morning? God, I just want to thank you for loving me through it. <laughs> Love me through it. Love me through the times when I don't listen and when I don't do what I'm supposed to do. And uh, I don't know if your goal is for my ball of clay to be a nice round circle ever again. I think that you use my broken pieces to, um, to teach me and teach others. And What I do pray is that you allow me to have the faith to turn it over to you every day. And that's the prayer that I have for everyone in this room right now. That anyone who's just struggling with it, whatever it is they're dealing with, that they can just turn to you and say, look, I just need to learn more. I just need to face in the direction of the God who loves me and be shaped by your grace. Father, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the chance of grace over punishment. And thank you for the chance of being different than we were before because of your love. We thank you for all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.